Well, good morning, guys. Thanks for joining us today in our first of two services. As I begin, I just want to say thank you so much. You know, uh, for those of you that have been around, at least for the last few weeks, you know, we have been collecting snack crackers for Hilburn Academy right down the road. Our goal was a 2,500 individual packets. If you saw the tables last week, we far exceeded it. We actually had 4,569. Um, so that was awesome. We, we dropped it off this week, and as the administrators are walking by, they're like, what is this? And I really quickly just want to send, uh, read you an email email that I received from one of the teachers. Uh, she wrote this to me. She said, good afternoon. Words cannot begin to express the gratitude we have for the gifts that from your church, from you and your church family. All the children now have access to a snack and not just to, ha not just to have to watch their friends eat. This may seem small to some, but great to the ones of us who want, to, uh, to want great things for our kids. May God continue to bless you and your church family exceedingly and abundantly. We are grateful. So again, thank you guys for your generosity and making that happen. We're going to do more with them, and they were really blown um, away. Now, uh, as we begin today, I want to tell you the story of how we got baby monitors. You might not know this, but in, this happened from 1932. You're like, I don't really care. You're going to care. This is an amazing story. Um, there was a man by the name of Charles Lindbergh, him and his wife. He was a famous early aviator, and him and his wife were pretty famous, which is part of why this happened. It's probably, probably why their kid got kidnapped in the first place. But on March 1st, 1932, uh, their kid was uh, kidnapped, and it became one of the biggest news stories, not just in the United States, but the world at that time. They couldn't find the kid. They were at home. The kid was upstairs, and they found later that they, a couple hours later that their child was no longer in the crib. And so it gained all this attention. Again, they were famous, and so that was part of the reason. Uh, two months later, out of a lot of back and forth and these anonymous tips and like ransom notes and all these sorts of things, the uh, child's body turned up on the side of the road um, dead. And uh, it was really sad, and it was sparked all this widespread panic in every parent in the country because they started thinking, what if this happens to my child? Because the whole, the whole hunt was this really big thing. Uh, one of the parents that was following this story was the pre president of Zenith Radio at the time. His name was Eugene F. McDonald Jr. Uh, he began tinkering with a device that could let him monitor the sounds in his young daughter's room because he didn't want this to happen to his kid. And of course, we live in America where capitalism is a thing. Now, here's the thing. The chances of someone kidnapping your baby from your house is virtually 0%. Like statistically, it's pretty much 0%, especially if you're, even more so if you're not famous like they were. However, it's an understandable fear, right? It's statistically an irrational one, but it's an understandable fear that you don't want someone to steal your baby. And so uh, Zenith Radio put together the first baby monitor, which they named the radio nurse. Here's a picture of it. If you want to put on the screen, this is the first one. The black one was in the child's room. The white one, I guess you kept wherever you were sitting in the house or wherever you could plug it in. Um, they named it Z, uh, Zenith Radio, and it was a workable invention. And so you could hear your child breathing essentially. Uh, the one problem was uh, that it broadcasted, it uses the same, you know, radio frequencies that cars radio use. And so if you were driving by and on the same frequency, you could hear someone's baby if you wanted to. Um, which was, of course, not the best way to reassure parents who were afraid of kidnappers. Now, the point, however, of this is that originally baby monitors were created to let you know that your child wasn't kidnapped. That's what they were, to make sure they were still in the house. Not if they were breathing or if they were sleeping or if they were getting out of their bed. This is what baby monitors have turned into, but originally that was not their function. 
Their function was just to make sure your baby wasn't stolen. And so they're, 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 today their function has changed, and it's totally fine, but it wasn't why they were originally created. And today, as we continue our study through the book of Genesis, we were in Genesis chapter 1 this week, the, last week, this week we're in chapter 2, but the question that we're looking at this morning is this, why were humans created? Why were humans created? What does the Genesis account submit to us, or to, what does the text uh, reveal to us as to why God actually created us in the first place, and really, why God created any of this? Because as we saw in Genesis chapter 1, humans were the crown of the creation. It was all leading up to this. Now, today, we're going to continue. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, and so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If not, there's a black one in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. It's not as quite as easy as to find yet last week because we're on page 2 instead of page 1, but you can probably find uh, where it's at. And so uh, Genesis chapter 2. Now, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to explain some context of what's going on here. Here's what it said. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Now, a couple of things that's going on here. This is really a, essentially a zoomed-in picture of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, where it kind of culminates in the creation of humanity, of Adam and of Eve. And so chapter 2 is kind of a zoomed-in picture of kind of what that actually looked like. Now, what's happening here is that the land was not suitable, was not suitable for human life. And so God created order out of disorder. As we talked about last week, the land was not initially suitable for humans to flourish. And so God God, it says here, had not yet brought the rain to the land, and there was no humans to work it. In fact, the ancient Hebrew actually suggests not just, it's not just talking about humans working the ground, but it's even talking about irrig irrig irrigating. I don't know how to say words. Making, making sure water is like everywhere. Irrigation, there we go. Uh, they couldn't irrigate the ground. And so perhaps part of the land had, so here's what's going on here. There's a lot of questions. We're gonna get into some of this today. We're not gonna hit all of them. Um, you could say that there had no, it had never rained before, which is what some people think the text is saying. Uh, you could argue, especially if you're saying that this, the land here is not the earth, as, uh, as the entire earth as we talked about last week, but specifically the promised land or a specific part of the land or of the earth, that the text could be implying it's not that it had never rained up until this point, but after, as he's getting ready to create the human beings, or at least place them into the garden, that the land or the area that they are in was perhaps in a drought, or maybe it had rainy seasons, and after he had created all of these things, it had not yet rained, so that it could bring life to the, to the vegetation that God had placed in the ground. So it could be saying it had never rained. It also could be saying that at least in this particular area, after God had created everything and was ready for human beings, it had not rained yet, or had, it had been a while since it had rained. Now, we also know this because it says mist here in verse 6, but mist would come up from the earth and water the ground. This is also a difficult word to translate. Uh, it could refer to springs or geysers or even rivers. Uh, for example, it could re refer to the flooding of rivers, and so like the Nile every year and other places, particularly in ancient cultures, you would have a river and it would flood, and you would need that flooding to happen every year to help water the ground, particularly if you have created irrigation ditches and all these things to 
control it. But again, there is this, the point here is that Texas said that this extra water was coming up out of the ground somehow, some way, but there are no humans to capture it and to help feed the ground with it. The point of what's going on here is that the God is creating a land for a people and inviting people to cultivate it with him, but they're not there yet. Now, again, remember we talked about this last week, so we're not going to be able to review everything. But remember, the creation account in Genesis also in some ways is displaying the difference between Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and the other pagan myths and mythologies and the other creation accounts of other gods. And so uh, some, some of what's going on here is it's saying here is how God is actually different. In fact, one biblical scholar, John Walton, put it this way. It'll be on the screen. In the ancient Near Eastern thought, the gods carried out agriculture and irrigation before humans were created. In fact, it was specifically the work of of digging irrigation ditches that the gods tired of and led them to rebel against the high gods and eventuated in the creation of people to dig the ditches and carry out the agriculture. By contrast, Genesis indicates that there was no irrigation prior to the creation of Adam. So in these other three or four really popular ancient mythologies, you have gods who were trying to work the ground. They got tired of it, and so they created humans to basically do it for them. That's not what you see in the creation account. That God has created everything, and he's waiting for humans to come so that he can work with them. And so here's what happens next in verse 7. It says this. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Now, again, there's a lot of questions when we read the creation account. The text does not say, or the, God, the text says God creates man, but he doesn't actually say how. It says he's from the ground, which, of course, is going to emphasize the relationship that humans have with creation, not just in the creation account, but all throughout Scripture. And, of course, as we'll see, spoiler alert, in the next couple of weeks, it is to the ground where humans are going to return when they die. More on that next week. But what we see here is that God created and God sustains humans life. Or put another way, what we see up until this point, both with Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is this, is that we as humans are created to co-rule with God. That's what's going on here. It's not humans need to do what the gods are tired of doing, but God has created all of these things. He's made an area ready for human flourishing, and he's inviting people to come work it and rule it with him. He doesn't need us. He's not missing something without us, but because he loves us, he's inviting us in to co-rule this ground, this earth, this land with him. That's what the text is encouraging us and showing us here. But then it says something interesting where people have a lot of questions. It says this in verse 8 if we keep reading. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man that he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what the text says here is he creates Adam first. He then places him in the garden somewhere in the promised land. There's a specific place, the Garden of Eden. And he places them where everything is good, where the land is ready. He doesn't have to start from scratch. He just needs to work it and continue it and bring water and help irrigate the land so that it stays good. The God created a, sp- a sacred space called the Garden of Eden inside this land that he is creating for humans. And then he places the man, Adam, in there. Now, this was clearly a special place for humans to flourish with God. It included the tree of life as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is a place where a lot of people got questions. 
what is going on with these trees? Now, let me say this. To be clear, we can only make conclusions about these trees based on the role that they play in Genesis 2 and 3. Now, we can conjecture, we can see what their implications are, but we, we don't have a ton of information, so we just need to be honest about that. It's best to say we can't fully understand how they functioned, but here's what we can see, okay? Let me, just for a minute, let me talk about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the tree of life, as we will see as we continue reading the text, was necessary to sustain perpetuated life for humans. That They were supposed to take of it, and as they would take of it, they would be able to continue to live. If that's true, and let me just, what I'm saying here is people can disagree, but one of the implications that it says what could be happening is that it seems kind of clear if humans must take from this tree to live, that the human body in and of itself, even in the original creation, was inclined to deterioration. That, that seems to be a possible in, in, inclination here. Otherwise, why would they have to eat of it? God provided the tree of life to make it unnecessary so that humans could continue to live and to flourish. And so when Adam and Eve are later banished from the garden, death became an unavoidable reality, it seems, not because they were never going to die, but because they could no longer take from the tree that gives them perpetual life. Death becomes an unavoidable reality. The means by which morality could be held at bay, the tree of life, was taken away. Now, if this is true, I think the text also suggests, again, people can disagree. Uh, one implication you could see from it, however, is that if that's true, then what this is saying is that death could have very well existed prior to the fall of Genesis 3. In fact, it says Adam had skin. This is later on in chapter 2. We know that the outermost layer of your skin, which is the epidermis, is made up of dead skin cells. I am very cognizant of it right now. As many of you know, I completely lacerated my middle finger earlier this year. If you don't know the story, I'm not going to tell you I cut them on tongs because that would be really embarrassing. Um, but I'm healing. But the problem is there's, I, I, all the skin died. And so there's a pink layer of skin that's really uncomfortable to touch. And so I have to wear this bandage thing so I can use my finger without it feeling weird. I'm waiting for this death to occur. We also know that plants and trees served as food. And so there was death in, in that kind of way. It seems like it's kind of a little bit arbitrary to say that some things died, but then some things like animals didn't. And again, because of sin of humanity, humans lost access to the tree that gives perpetual life and therefore became susceptible to death. And only humans had the ability to eat from the tree to begin with. So if you can't eat from the tree, you cannot live forever. Now, as I say this, listen to me. There are biblical scholars that fall on both ends, that say there was no death, and that it says there was death. Why I'm pointing this out is to say you can be a committed follower of Jesus and have a very high view of Scripture and differ on what the creation actually looked like. You can be a committed follower of Jesus and say the earth is young, nobody died. You can be a committed follower of Jesus and say the earth is old and God used evolution to bring us here. You could be, according to this text, there, are, there is room for that here. It's not quite clear as we might want to assume. And so that's the tree of life. You have to eat of it to live. The second is this, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This one probably you have more questions about because the tree of life kind of makes sense. The God, knowledge of good and evil is kind of confusing. Now, here's the thing. It's not saying that Adam and Eve had no knowledge at all of good and bad. Or else, how could they be held responsible for disobeying God? 
right? If they literally had no moral, moral function of what's going on, how could they be held responsible from taking from that tree later if they don't, go, if they don't know? So, so what's going on here? Well, well, good and evil is a mirrorism. Now, we said this last week, a mirrorism is a rhetorical device uh, that contrasts two opposites to refer to everything in that idea. So in the be- Genesis chapter 1, 1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They had no word for universe. What it's saying is that everything we see, God created. Here, this is a mirrorism for all moral knowledge, but also wisdom. In other words, that you, if you take from this tree, can create a system of ethics and make moral judgments like God. Now, the problem is, unless we know everything, all of our judgments can only be relative to what we know, and, that our, and, and of course, our desires. And so what happens if not only we're not knowledgeable enough, or we're not wise enough, or what happens when we have selfish desires? In other words, what we see happening here is that this tree, as we're going to see next week, is a tree that can make you like a God. The question is, why would God put this in here if it's going to set up humans to fail? We're going to talk about that next week uh, to bring some clarity to what is going on with this tree. But for now, basically, there's two trees in the middle of the garden, one that's going to lead to life and one that will lead to death because humans are not yet ready to take of it. So he sets them up, puts these trees in the garden, and then the narrative talks about where Eden is located. Now, the next couple of verses, we're not going to read all of them here, but basically it says that the Garden of Eden is between four rivers, two rivers that we know of today, and two rivers we don't know of today. It could have been a flood, it could have been just, you know, earth stuff changes over thousands of years. It seems to be that perhaps the original readers of this text might have known where the Garden of Eden was created, but we don't know. There's been a lot of attempts to try to find it, but the best we can understand, we don't exactly know where the Garden of Eden would have been. It obviously would have been somewhere in the Middle East area, but we don't know. So the text goes on to say where the garden is, but then it says this in verse 15. Here's the point on chapter 2 if we keep reading. Uh, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day of it you, will, you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, here's the point here, that Adam has been giving everything he needs to not only survive, but thrive, especially if you've read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. God is setting this all up for their success and their vitality and and for things to go well for them. God is inviting him to trust in himself. God is inviting Adam to trust in the Lord, that if you eat of this tree, it will lead to your death. Certainly a sort of spiritual death, disconnection from God, but also, as we'll find out, a physical death as well. Now, the trans- one of the things that's difficult is if you read multiple translations of the Bible and they translate words differently, it because, it, because there's a difficult, it's hard to translate, right? When you translate something, you have to pick a single word when the word you're translating could have a range of meaning. And, and the CSB, the translations that we have, it says, on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, of course, the question becomes when they eat of it, spoiler alert, and they don't die right away, what's going on here? But what's interesting is this sentence could easily also be understood in Hebrew that as when you eat of it, you will be sentenced to death and therefore doomed to die. Different translations, again, translate it differently, but the the point seems to be here that the moment that you eat of it, uh, death will be your ultimate consequence. It could be saying you'll die right away, or it could be saying your eventual result of doing this will lead to death for you. Of course, it just played out later on when we see that Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden and no longer have access to the tree of life. Now, why would God do that? We'll talk about that next week. But what we, next week, but what we see happening here is this, that we are created to enjoy God and trust him. 
That's what Genesis 2 is telling us, that we are created to enjoy God, to trust him, to love him, to be a part of what his creation and what's happening here. What is emphatically clear in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that God loves and cares for the pinnacle of his creations, which is humanity, which includes you. That he creates a place for them to live. He invites them to co-rule with them. And he provides everything for Adam and for Eve, which we'll see in a second. Everything that they need not only to survive, but to thrive. And he's inviting them to work with him, to live with him. But he's also inviting them to trust him. That what he says is true and what he says is good. That all this stuff is good, but you have to trust me. Now, um, it's kind of like if you have kids, uh, they have to trust us. What's interesting here, as you know what's going to go on, and we'll, we'll read this more, especially when we hit Genesis 3 next week, you might be like, why would Adam and Eve not obey God? They have been given everything. God has provided for them. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense that they would then, then therefore go and, you know, disobey and do what he's asked them not to do. But if you have kids, you know this. And of course, if you, I mean, if you, you were a kid, which you probably were at some point, um, you, you, as you get older, you realize this. When you're a kid, you really have no idea how much your parents do for you. Like there's just no, you have no idea how you've completely altered their schedule, how you've completely altered their finances, how, how you're just a ton of work. Now, I have two kids, I love my kids, I wouldn't trade them for anything, but everything is different and they really have no idea how much my life is altered because of them. They don't know. And so what's happening here, also when you have kids, here's what you know, your kids, if they're young, um, do not, he's like, my kids are older, and I still think this. They do not have the ability to make wise decisions, right? If they make all, if you gave them the ability to make all the decisions you'd want to, them to make, what would happen? Well, my four-year-old would play Nintendo Switch all the time. My daughter would never go to school. They would eat chocolate and candy and cookies, and they would never go to sleep, right? They are not in a space in their life where they are wise enough to have the ability and authority to make certain decisions, and so they need to trust me and trust Christina, if we allowed them to make, allowed them the ability to make all the decisions that they wanted to right now, things would not go well for them. They need to trust us, which is part of, as we'll see next week, the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll just say it this way. It's not that humans were never supposed to take of it. It's just that they were not yet ready. And what's happening here is that God hasn't created us. We are created to enjoy God, but we also have to trust him, that he knows things that we don't know, that he loves us and cares for us and sees things that we do not see. And then when we go and take it for ourselves, things don't go how we might expect because we're not in the position to be God. And then it says this, if we keep reading in verse 18 of chapter two, creates them, says, don't eat from these trees, but you can have everything else. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. And so this is the first time in the creation account that we find out that things are not good. Everything has been good up until this point, until now. The man has no one like him, no one suitable, no one corresponding. There is no one like the man. And so God creates a helper. Now, this is the Hebrew word, Eitzer, which literally means helper. It's how you could translate it. 
But it implies, here's what it implies. It implies one who supplies help or strength in the area that is lacking to the one who is being helped. Now, to be clear, and this is what we might miss in our assumptions reading the text or maybe in our English translation, this does not imply that the helper uh, is somehow stronger or, or weaker of the person that they're being helped. It's not implying that in the text. In fact, there are many examples in the Old Testament where God is the Aetzer to a person or to a people or to the nation of Israel, or nations are Aetzers, Aetzers to each other. In other words, God, of course, is stronger than us, but he comes and helps his people. Uh, therefore, I, or a lot of biblical scholars would argue, that it would be improper here, at least here in this text, to assume that helper is necessarily the opposite of leader. That's not what this text is saying. It's not like the man needs someone to like do the stuff that he can or doesn't want to do. What it's saying is that the man is not complete and he needs a equal with him so that they can do together what the man cannot do by himself. The point here is that Adam finds no suitable companionship in all of the creation and all of the animals. And so he needs someone of his own kind. Now, again, you also see a difference here between the, the, uh, the Genesis account and other ancient creation myths. One of them, the Gilgamesh epic, you have a guy named Enkidu. He's a half, half man and he's a half beast. And in this creation account, he's actually content with animal companionship until he is seduced by a prostitute sent to capture him. That's what it sets up. In other words, what you see in these other ancient creation accounts is that women are less than men. They get in the way, that they, that they seduce them, that they're unwise, that you don't really, if a man is fine by himself and he just has to put up with a woman, that's actually what you get from all these other ancient Near Eastern accounts. That's not at all what you get in the Genesis account. In fact, what we'll see in a second is that when he, Adam, he turns away from the animals, not because they aren't enough or good enough, but because he is attracted to the woman, that he sees something good in her. In fact, this is why, as we will see, what does he say when he sees her for the first time, right? Whoa, man. <laughs> Thank you for laughing at that. My wife and I had a joke, and she said you wouldn't laugh, and I just won. So um, he didn't actually say, whoa, man, but he could have, right? He, she is good. Now, let me point something out here. I just want to, for a second, I want to point out how crazy male-female co-rulership, co-equalship, if you will, is in the ancient world. Now, did the Israelites always live this out? Absolutely not. But it's crazy that this was held up as the ideal, not just in 2023, but in this ancient worldview, ancient culture, the ideal is male and women, male and female, co-working, co-ruling as equals together. In other words, what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is that men and women are created as co-laborers with God. Men and women. Again, remember, this was not written in 2023 where women's rights were not at all taken into consideration, right? This was actually radical. In fact, what's even more radical about this is here's what we know, right? Just like all ancient texts, the Bible was written by men. Now, we would argue under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, all that sort of thing. But it was written by and composed of men who are saying in the ancient world, this is the ideal. Now, do they always live it out? Absolutely not. But the ideal is not that women come along, you got to put up with them and men are better. And it's that they are supposed to be together. Now, of course, they got off track. Of course, this is why we love Jesus because what does Jesus do? He elevates women. 
Why does he elevate women? Not because he's this guy of like love and mercy and kindness, although he is. He's elevating them because he's bringing the hygienist's ideal to us. That men and women are co-workers, co-laborers, co-valuable to each other and before the Lord. That is what Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 has been telling us. So again, particularly if you're a woman here, perhaps you've had these Genesis texts read to you or you've seen people write these things online talking about how women, men, men are always in charge and women are this thing. That's not what you see here. If you read the text on its own terms without our modern assumptions placed into it, you see that men and women are created as co-laborers with God. That Jesus was not doing something radical. I mean, he was culturally, but he was not doing anything radically scripturally. He was simply living out what God wants us to do, which makes sense because he was and is God. This is why in Galatians chapter 3, the apostle Paul is writing about salvation. And then he says this. He says this, and it'll be on the screen, verse 27. For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. What's happening here? He's not saying that there's no differences between men and women and Jews and Gentiles and all these. There are differences, but when it comes to salvation, we are all on equal playing field. When he talks about you are Abraham's seed, I was always confused as a kid. If you grew up in church, you'll get this. If not, you won't. You remember that song, like Father Abraham had many sons and I'm one of them. And I was like, but I'm not. Like, I'm not Jewish. Like, I don't, how is this a thing? The reason it's a thing is what Paul is saying is that even if you are a non-Jew, if you are a Gentile, you are grafted into the God's kingdom, that the promise that God promised to Abraham that one day someone from his offspring would save the entire world, that even if you're not ethnically or technically Jewish, everyone who follows Jesus is invited into this salvation. The gospel of Jesus is not that he came for the good people or for the men or for the people that acted good enough to get his grace and his mercy. The gospel that God came for all people because as we saw last week, all people are valuable. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, what your gender is, or what you've done. You are valuable to God and he loves you. I just, you need to know this morning, maybe you walked in here and you did some things this week that you're not proud of or you think, man, I, I, there's bad stuff going on in my life. I need to shape up to get on God's good side. Listen, God loves you right where you are because you are a human being created in his image. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. He perfectly uh, upheld the law. He perfectly upheld the Genesis idea where we fell short so that he could be our substitute in our place so that you and I could experience the grace and mercy of God. All people, no matter who you are, no matter how you might identify yourself with the various things in our culture, whether ethnicity or with your job or your relationship status or whatever it is, in Jesus, all people can be heirs according to the promise that God would send his son to redeem. That's what we see. And then if we finish up Genesis chapter two, here's what it says, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. Remember, He's looking at the animals. Nobody is good enough. There is no good enough companion. God took uh, one of his rims and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rim he had taken from the man and into a uh, taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, "Whoa, man!" <laughs> he didn't. That was funny. And the man said, "This one." Somebody booed. Get out of here. Uh, the man said. <laughs> This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called 
I mean, he kind of says it. Woman. <clears throat> For she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, let me point out something that's really significant, easy for us to miss, often miss as we read this text, particularly in our English translations, just because we're, we, don't, you know, we don't know the Hebrew. Uh, like the creation of man from dust, the creation from what the English translates as rib leaves us with a lot of questions. Like, it's not actually telling us how this worked, but it leaves us with a lot of questions. Uh, the word actually that's translated rib here is not used anatomically anywhere else in the Old Testament. Now, it makes sense that it's used anatomically here because Adam is a person. He's not, an, he's not a piece of architecture. Typically, it's an architectural term. Like, you take something and you build a building, or you take half the materials and you make one thing, and then you take the materials and you make something else. In other words, uh, given the meaning of how this word is used both later in the Old Testament and in other ancient Near Eastern texts that were written around this time as well, it actually seems to be best to understand the rib taking out as the text portraying God taking a handful of bone and flesh. Not just like a piece of bone. He's like, here you go. It actually seems like he's like taking like almost half the human body, half Adam's body and making a woman. He's taking a big chunk of his side, or maybe half of his side, in the construction of Eve, which, of course, makes sense because of how he replies. He doesn't say, my rib, let's eat. He doesn't say that, right? <clears throat> that funny? Okay, anyway. Here's what he says. And they are introduced as one flesh. He says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like, you've taken a large chunk of me, and now we are, now I am complete. And they are introduced as one flesh here. This is the first marriage. And this is what marriage does. The marriage ideal is that a couple who are separate now become joined together. They literally become one, one, and they are bonded to each other with the marital bond given priority of the parental bond, which is, of course, a big deal here. Also, it was even a bigger deal in the ancient culture that your primary, most important relationship is no longer your parents that you're your family that you grew up with, but your spouse. Of course, you still loved your family, you all those sort of things, but your primary focus was now on your spouse, and the husband and wife become bound to one another, and they felt no shame. They felt no shame, even while they were exposed in every single way. And so as we close here this morning, again, why were humans created? We've talked about co-ruling and co-laboring. If I could sum it up, here, here's what you could say. Here's ultimately why we were created. We were created to work with God and enjoy him forever. Right? If you're familiar with the Westminster Catechism, maybe you're not, but you might have heard this question. The first question is this, what is the chief end of man? A man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what it says. Genesis 2 presents a picture of a people who would walk with the Lord, who would work with the Lord, and who loved each other. And so I just want to say this, enjoying God might sound weird to you. You might think, well, I have to obey God. I got to do the right thing or he's mad at me. What we see happening here is not that, that he loves us, that he's inviting us in and that he wants us to trust him, right? Again, as we talked about at the beginning, the baby monitor thing, they're no longer used for their intended purpose, which is fine. It's changed. It's different. It's adapted. Uh, for us, you could argue that human beings often don't treat each other as they're intendedly, uh, originally intended to do so. But unlike the baby monitor that has gotten better, a change for the better, our existence has not. The reason we were created has not changed. That we would know God, that we would love him, and that we would, he, we would also experience his love. Again, Jesus came to make this ideal possible. That although we fall short, although we go our own way, although we sin, and although we blow it, what's Jesus saying? 
I'm here, and you are welcome into my family, not because of what you have done, but because of what he did on the cross. We were created to work with God and enjoy him forever. Jesus has come to make that possible when he recreates the heavens and the earth. All people who not worked really hard, but trusted him and experienced his grace will experience this in its, in its, in its finality and in its totality.